everybody happy end of summer or end of winter in the southern hemisphere because we are a global organization here i'm jeff salzman and welcome back to the daily evolver live on integral radio at integrallife.com it's Tuesday, September 15th, 2015, and I am ever so happy to be back in the groove with you people again. I'm here tonight with, as always, Brett Walker. Hey, Brad, how you doing? Hey, Jeff. All is well. Good. Stella and Gracie are in the kitchen. We hope uh, suitably distracted, our little puppies. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we have Corey DeVos at Integral Radio, handling the tech there. And again, I hope you all had a great summer. I did. I really feel like this was the summer, uh, really the first summer in a long time where I felt like I took it off, like I did when I was a kid at school. And um, that doesn't mean that Brett did, (laughs) because we were putting up a new website and and, uh, we had a bunch of stuff, interviews and so forth, that I had done and, and we had them in the can, so to speak. So he had to, to work with those. And I did it a little bit here and there, but um, basically it was a nice summer of um, just being in um, the beautiful Boulder. I uh, worked with um, Steve McIntosh doing the Integral Escalator, which was a weekend event, which turned out great. And Steve has a new book coming out, The Presence of the Infinite, that actually it's out now, as of two days ago at um, Amazon and so forth. And I was working, of course, with Ken Wilbur and Diane Hamilton and Terry Patton on the Integral Living Room, which is um, an event that we have, and also a series of calls. If you're interested, check it out. It's sold out, of course, this time. We always sell that thing out. It's coming up... um, in October. And um, yeah, just, um, you know, working with Integral Life and Integral Radio and and just a word, I guess, to our sponsor, Integral Life. Uh, I want to give a shout out to um, Ken Wilbur, whose work I have been so inspired by, and Integral Life, which is the main web portal for his work. And um, you know, it's, it's really what we do here at The Daily Evolver is we apply integral theory and mainly the aqua model developed by uh, Ken Wilber. And I have to say also I'm very inspired by the work of Steve McIntosh, who I mentioned. So, you know, these are the philosophical um, inspirations for this endeavor. And I seek to apply integral theory to current events for two reasons. One is that integral theory helps us to understand current events better. So we, you know, think about ISIS and we think about the migration of of refugees in Europe and 
the meltdown of the stock market in um, China and the American political melee. And all of it is just, it's, it's like that Google map. You turn the resolution up and you see that, oh, wait, what I thought was just the ocean and there's the mountains and there's the plains, I now see that, oh, okay, there's features in between and forests and rivers and people and settlements. That's what the integral map does. It helps us to see things more clearly and more detail and see patterns that have been heretofore unseen. And then also on the other side of the street, current events helps us to understand integral theory because, you know, it's a fairly abstract model of the world. Of course, integral theory, I mean, just to, for those of you who may not know, is the uh, philosophical challenge of integrating all of human wisdom into a meta pattern where we see patterns that um, connect East and West and pre-modern and post-modern and science and religion. And yes, there's a theory of everything that is, you know, that's sort of the, the, the goal. That's the quest of integral theory so that we can, because we have all of human wisdom available to us now, that we can actually lay it out on the table, see the whole banquet and see how things connect. So that's what we're doing here. All right. Well, I think what, why don't we just get into the main topic tonight, uh, which we have uh, advertised and been thinking about, and it's something that we haven't talked about even in the you know the last season. We didn't talk about it much because it was all just developing. But that is the American political situation, and that is you know of course we're having the presidential elections in a year next November, so a little over a year, and we'll be heralding the beginning of a new Donald Trump administration. <laughs> it's the end of the Obama years and the beginning of the birther years. Well, who knows? Uh, I actually doubt that. But, uh, of course, the story of the American political situation is Donald Trump, uh, where he is leading in every poll, in every state, and generally by a wide margin. And I had a friend of mine, Brian, who uh, is not that into politics, uh, but he's into entertainment and so forth. And he knows Donald Trump as a celebrity from The, the Apprentice and so forth. And he called me a couple days ago and he asked me <laughs> in the most sincere way, uh, and you could sort of feel the trepidation. He said, can Donald Trump really be the president? And, you know, I could tell that he, you know, he sort of likes Donald Trump. He's both fascinated and horrified by the proposition, as I think we all are, aren't we? Sort of. And my answer to him was absolutely not. You know, I am, I think, almost 100% sure <laughs> that Donald Trump will never be the next president of the United States, probably. But, um, you know, one never knows. Life is full of surprises. Uh, and at any rate, Donald Trump is, and I mean this sincerely, performing a great evolutionary service to his country by running. 
So I'll, I'll explain this. Uh, so we, you know, basically bring the integrals microscope. This is what we do here. So, you know, what do we, what does integral theory tell us about Donald Trump? How can we better understand him? And with that lens, we see that Donald Trump is basically developmentally speaking, playing a different game than the other candidates. Okay. Typically, Republicans are operating, and actually, let me just stop here for a second. And, and for those of you who aren't really conversant in integral theory, let me suggest that you go to my website, dailyevolver.com, click on the theory section, and you'll see, Brett, are they right there? The, 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 the charts? Yeah, right up at the top. Right at the top. Uh, two charts, one on the altitudes of development, very key to integral theory. And integral theory says that if humanity is evolving through predictable stages of development. And, and then there's also a, another chart about the quadrants. And these are you know, fundamental. And those of you who know integral theory know that. But I just want to help people because, you know, that's what we're doing here. All right. So typically Republicans are operating from what you'll see in that chart is the amber stage of development. And that is the stage of traditionalists. And these are social conservatives. These people are militaristic. They're nationalistic. They're not world-centric. They're nation-centric. And, you know, they believe in hearth and home and guns and grandma. And, you know, we all know these people. Many of us grew up with these people. And that's the social conservatives, about 25, 30% of the American population. Next, we have the uh, orange or the modern stage of development. Uh, this is the stage of development that incorporates the business people, scientists, secularists. But the business people, um, the libertarians, the people who really believe in this radical sense of individual freedom, these people tend to skew Republican. So that's the game that is being played. And I don't mean this cynically. I mean, these are the two structures of development that are being lit up by the Republicans, the traditionalists, and at least the business side of the modernists. Now, what Donald Trump is doing is he is changing the game because he's coming from the previous stage, the stage previous to traditionalism, which is what we call the red warrior stage, in which the world is ordered according to power dynamics. Now, this is pre-legal. This is pre-Ten Commandments. This is pre-the Eightfold Path. This is pre-any kind of transcendent reorganization of, of humanity. And what passes for currency at this stage is just who's the strongest in any situation. And the, the, one of the markers of this is that you don't make policy proposals at this stage of development. You don't even make arguments. You don't try to persuade. 
You just make assertions. And I think that uh, Donald Trump's propensity for this is exemplified in this audio that I'd like to play. It's a 20 seconds from the Jimmy Kimmel show. And it's a, uh, an ad that Kimmel put together for Trump. And take a listen. Donald Trump, a man with a vision for America. Not a specific vision, a great vision, the best vision. Donald Trump has a plan for making this country great again. What plan? A great plan. A plan that will work because it is the best. <laughs> now, this is a perfectly coherent Red Warrior argument. Uh, we let other candidates issue position papers, lay out policy agendas. Trump says, I'm not here even to convince you or persuade you. I'm not here to win you over. I'm here to tell you that I'm the guy who is going to make America great again. And if you're smart, and if you're not a loser, you're going to be with me. Now, that is, you know, for most of us on this call who are postmodern and, you know, integral, that's kind of, you feel yourself cringe. It's kind of embarrassing. But a lot of people are with him. And, you know, I'm even with him. I mean, we all have, you know, we may have whatever structures that have been you know, brought online in our own psyches that are beyond red warrior. But that red warrior, remember, integral includes as it transcends. So none of these earlier structures go away. And so I vibe with that red structure. I notice it. It, it draws my attention. And, and there are a few characteristics of the red warrior structure that are worth mentioning. And first of all, it's sort of what we've been talking about. There's a braggadocio about it. Now, this is true whether you're a red politician or a, uh, a gangster or a dictator or a warlord or a fighter. You know, these are all characters that live in that red stage of development. And so you have Trump saying things like, I built a tremendous fortune. I have a very high IQ. When was the last time you heard somebody say, I have a very high IQ? I mean, it's, it's like disqualifying at the higher stages. But at red, it actually has, you know, currency. I will be the greatest jobs president God ever created. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border. And I will have Mexico pay for that wall. I mean, we've heard these over and over again, these assertions by Donald Trump. Now, again, these aren't policy positions. These aren't even arguments. Those are yet to come uh, developmentally. Those come at, you know, the traditional and modern. At, at, at modern, you start making uh, arguments based on fact. But at the warrior stage of development, it's about looking good. And because that's kind of all there is at that stage of development, all right? So another marker of this stage is bling, B-L-I-N-G. And, you know, you see this, of course, in rap music and, uh, you know, uh, the, 
well, with Trump, it's his whole brand. The Trump buildings, they're marble and gold-plated. And his uh, apartment in his Manhattan skyscraper is, I mean, you should look it up on the internet. It's carved ceilings like the Sistine Chapel and gilded marble pillars. It's, you know, I, 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 the slogan from his website is, live life with no boundaries, limits, or compromise. And that is, you know, a red, basically a red vibration. And then, of course, also sexual prowess. This is also a big characteristic of this stage of development. Genghis Khan, <laughs> apparently, had such a way with the ladies that he has 16 million descendants living to the, today. I just saw that in somewhere on the internet. So it must be true. So, you know, if we're a red altitude rapper, we surround ourselves with oiled up gyrating girls in bikinis. If we're a red altitude billionaire casino developer, we surround ourselves with Miss Universe. And that's, you know, slightly more refined, but that's where Donald Trump is. And, you know, I don't mean to be cynical about this. This is a very legitimate, because it's, you know, their stage of development. We all resonate with it at about the uh, third chakra, about the, where the solar plexus is. We could feel that um, vibrational coherence with somebody who's strong and can take care of us. Maybe it's us, you know, maybe it's feeling our own power. This is evolutionary right on schedule. But one of the things we do at Integral is we just differentiate it. And we see that this warrior stage is about power, but it's not about law. It's not about fairness. That's traditionalism. It's not about rights. Uh, that's modernity. And God forbid, it's not about pluralism. That's green postmodern. And all of that, of course, sounds like chaos to a warrior. So uh, note that this red vibe that Donald Trump is putting out is riveting. You know, people can't not notice it. People can't not look. It's like a train wreck in a certain way. And so you saw at the last Republican presidential debate that, and we're, by the way, we're going to have another debate tomorrow, so we'll see how that goes. And I think Donald Trump has grown a little teensy bit from the first to the second, but the first really defined him. Um, and, it, it, you know, by the end of it, I, I was seeing Donald Trump and nine pygmies standing beside him. And, you know, normally people will respond to the higher level arguments, the, the arguments coming from traditionalism or even modernity. But where these arguments are in contemporary American culture is that they have become so polarized. And actually, polarization is a stage of development. So we're not against polarization. We notice that it plays its role in evolution. Uh, as Walt Whitman said, out of the dimness, opposite 
equals advance. And Hegel talked about that we have a thesis and then an antithesis, and they have to get really, really, really clear with each other. And then we get a new synthesis. So that's kind of what's happening. But what we have in sort of the calcified stage of this development is the political class who are operating out of the political best practices. They are basically running everything through endless polling, focus groups, finding out where people's hot buttons are, what turns them on, what turns them off, where in you in your speech did the focus group turn up the dial or down the dial? And you construct your political message and your political persona as a way of appealing to that. And you, you know, find your position in the market, the political market, and then you go out and you raise money and you get support from the leading people in the party and the system and you get about the product of selling yourself. And again, I don't mean to sound cynical about this. If you look at history, this kind of modern political practice where leaders are trying to both understand exquisitely, you know, feel into the electorate and then lead the electorate through nudges and, and feints, that's actually a high achievement of humanity. Way higher than, you know, the previous stages. You know, Stalin didn't care about public opinion. And most kings and warlords, you know, that just wasn't what was a factor. So anyway, we have this situation where Donald Trump has come in and blown up this calcified political class. And he has... Strangely enough, and, and it's not an unusual thing in politics, we think of Roosevelt, we think of Kennedy, but somebody coming from the, the classes that are actually identifying with the masses and going against the entrenched elites. What Donald Trump is doing that none of the other Republicans will do is he has declared war politically against the a political elites and the economic elites. And this is very, very powerful because this begins to break up this hardened polarity that is formed. So we notice that with the political elites, I just saw recently um, in the last couple of weeks uh, some statistics that showed that the richest metropolitan area in the country is the area around Washington, D.C. And, you know, let's pause there. That is the center of the American political class, populated by people who run the political system, both in and out of the private sector. It is a norm for people who are in government, whether they're working for the bureaucracy or their congresspeople or whatever, to then go to the private sector to become multimillionaires and the beat goes on. You know, there's a revolving door around the public and private sector. Again, I'm not cynical about this entirely. I think that it's actually an achievement of humanity to have this. But, you know, 
as with all systems, there are people who are playing it for their advantage. Then we have the economic elites. And these are the people, generally more located in New York City, but these are the people who run the economy. And they are also disproportionately enriched by it. So that you have the proverbial hedge fund manager making millions of dollars a year, or even hundreds of millions of dollars a year. This is not unusual. And these people are paying a smaller tax rate than their secretaries. And of course, both of these, the political elites and the economic elites, think that this is the way it ought to be. They don't see themselves as being bad people. In fact, they are doing the world a favor. And, and, and actually, they are, in the sense that they are running this astonishing, again, achievement of humanity, the worldwide political and economic system. This unbelievably complex matrix of flow of money, money equals energy. So this flow of energy that contains and controls the whole human, as we would say in an integral, lower right quadrant, the collective exterior, the manifest world of human systems. And that is a, you know, we need these people. And it is also, I guess, just to be expected that they're going to take a little nick out of everything and a growing nick out of everything, which adds up for them to, in extreme cases, you know, the Lamborghini, the second homes, the third homes, all of the stuff, the, the yachts that um, begin to be sort of morally repugnant at some point. It's funny how that works. We just notice it in our own minds and bodies that, you know, we want people to, to achieve. We want people to achieve even in a big way. But there, you know, it's like Bernie Sanders said, when 0.1%, not 1%, but 0.1% of the people own more than the bottom 90%, then there's something wrong. And this is the sort of interesting thing about polarities, is that once you get the thesis and antithesis well sort of metabolized and, and, and clarified, then the next step is to create a new synthesis. So you have both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders operating from the same political agenda which consists of two major platforms. One is tax hikes for the rich. Both of them are big time for it. And two, an end to cheap labor and trade deals, which, you know, have, according to this view, this, you know, new integrated view, really gutted the middle class in this country. And... It's really so interesting to see this unfold. I mean, last night, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, okay, the, the, for those of you who don't know, he's, what, 73 years old. He's running way to the left of Hillary Clinton as a self-avowed socialist. He's not even a Democrat. He's a socialist. 
He caucuses with the Democrats in the Senate. He's a senator from Vermont, longtime senator. And last night goes to Liberty University, which is the fundamentalist evangelical university in Virginia, founded by Jerry Falwell, the most right of the right. And Bernie Sanders is the most left of the left. And his he's giving his speech. He never changes it. It's the same speech every time, you know, about economic justice and the 0.1% and all of this. And they're like loving it. He's bringing down the house. And there's something happening here that I think is really, really worth noticing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but please, God, <laughs> let's not actually have Trump be president, okay? <laughs> I mean, I do want to—a couple things in his favor before I completely turn against him. You know, clearly, he's able to operate from red. This is, you know, so interesting. It's like, you know, it's not about what's good for the country in a way. It's about what's good for—the country doesn't exist at red. The country—I am the country. And that's Donald Trump. If you think about the the, the probably the most— uh, Famous point in this whole election cycle so far was at the last Republican debates, which was a month ago or so. And the opening question, this was the debate, famous debate by uh, Fox News and Megyn Kelly and Brett Baer and all those guys. And the first question is, raise your hand. This is to all of the candidates, all 10 of them in the top tier. Raise your hand. If you do not pledge to support the eventual nominee of the Republican Party. And, you know, I actually stopped my VCR at that point because I had a room full of people. We were all watching it and we were all like, oh, my God, what's he going to say? You know, is he, is he not? Whatever. And we put it back on and there's everybody looking at each other and Donald Trump raises his hand. And he said, you know, I'm not going to pledge my support to the eventual nominee of the Republican Party. And that's, you know, scandalous and it gets everybody's attention. And, you know, I thought, oh my God, we have our savior. You know, I'm like everybody else. And here's what I wish he had said. That he didn't. But here's what I wish he had said. He should have said, yes, I'm a Republican and I intend to run as a Republican. But what we're doing here with my campaign is bigger than the Republican Party. Our country is going to hell. And you Republicans have been party to it every step of the way. You supported the bailout. You supported NAFTA and Obama's incompetent trade deals that have gutted the middle class and buried working people. You Republicans brought about this Dangerous treaty with Iran. How does the most important treaty in 20 years pass the Senate with just 40 votes? That's blatantly unconstitutional. But you Republicans let it happen. Obamacare is a disaster, reviled by the vast majority of the American people, and still it stands. That's why you Republicans have a 28% approval rating among your own members. 
I would love to run as a Republican, the party of Reagan. And I'm going to work to win the Republican nomination. But if that's not possible, I reserve the right to maintain that what I'm doing here for the American people is bigger than the Republican Party. And I have a responsibility to this great country to carry that out and make America great again in, you know, whatever, until the buzzer rings. That's what I wish he had said. I mean, not that I agree with most of that, actually, but, you know, I would have been inspired by it. <laughs> but instead, he says, no, I'm not going to uh, pledge to, to support the Republican nominee because I don't know how you're going to treat me. If you treat me with respect, I'll support the nominee. If you don't, I'm making no promises. I have to maintain my leverage. And, oh, my God, I could feel myself deflate. Even last night, you had this big rally in Dallas, 20-some thousand people. And still, the whole night, it's about him and his polls. There's nothing about policy. There's nothing about um, an agenda. And, you know, at, at some point, it's not, you know, clearly Donald Trump is not just limited to the red altitude of development. He, he can operate in traditionalism. He knows how to sit down and shut up, and he knows how to be civilized, and he's a good father, and, you know, he's a nativist. He's a, you know, he's militaristic. He's, you know, uh, 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 nation-centric. And then, clearly, he's also good in the orange or the modernist stage of development. He's been a tremendous success, a multi-billionaire in one of the most cutthroat uh industries in the, in the world, and that is uh, real estate. And then he also has a postmodern vibe. I mean, he's supported Democrats. He's been pro-abortion. He's been, I mean, he you know, a few years ago, he proposed a 14% surtax on wealthy people in order to pay for the deficit. And th this is crazy by Republican orthodoxy. So green as can be. So he's able of moving uh, through stages, and that has a certain integral vibe to it. But this is where we can actually look at another one of the integral maps, and that is the, the map of type. And we see that in terms of typography, um, or typology, I'm sorry, that Donald Trump is probably a terribly pathological Enneagram 3. In other words, he has a narcissism personality disorder where he's literally incapable of looking outside of himself and his own welfare. I mean, it's actually a disability. It's something we ought to feel bad about when people have. Uh, but it can be very powerful because it's so clear that you follow me. I am the powerful person and it's all going to work out. Don't, don't worry about it. It's a little bit like the way children deal with their parents. I mean, this is, you know, from an integral perspective, it actually is. Individually, we go through the stage as we grow up and we, you know, become, um, uh, you know, uh, powerful with our parents. Uh, but every kid, when your parents say, we're going to go to the zoo, or the carnival, we don't worry about the details. We don't worry about what route they're going to take, how they're going to pay for it. None of that matters. It's like, yeah, let's go. 
And that is the way that we deal with a red leader. And so we notice ourselves sort of responding to Donald Trump in that way. And I would like to think, and we'll see tomorrow night, maybe he's grown. I doubt it. I mean, he didn't grow last night uh, at, at, at that rally. I mean, geez, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. But, you know, hope springs eternal. I mean, I wish we could get a non-crazy billionaire running for president. We've had Donald Trump, we've had Ross Perot, both certifiable. I wish Bill Gates would run for president and, and, and finance himself. But um, anyway, fear not, dear liberals, we do have <laughs> Hillary Clinton. And let's move on to Hillary. Hillary Clinton, who's lost 20% of her support in the last two months, she is losing to Bernie Sanders in the first key states of Iowa and New Hampshire. In New Hampshire, she's losing by a lot. And she uh, is seen as being honest and trustworthy by only 25% of the population. And this is a really crushingly low number because one of the things we see is, is we look at the la all of the elections in the mo modern times is that the most likable candidate wins. I mean, it's really one of those, that's why candidates try to be likable. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but that is an ironclad rule of politics. And, you know, so what is that? You know, what is this sort of X factor? Uh, Hillary Clinton certainly is competent. She works hard. She is, uh, you know, very, very loyal. And she, But there's no emotional appeal. There's, you know, some emotional appeal that she has by just being a woman and I think there are a lot of people out there, particularly, you know, advanced modernists, postmodernists, who would, with all other things being equal, prefer to have a woman president because it's just time to do that. So she's going to get that. But the bigger X factor is, from an integral perspective, we would say it's, it's what's happening in the right-hand quadrants. It's the subtle body. It's real material vibration in the upper right quadrant and the lower right quadrant where people who have it enter a certain kind of flow of authenticity. They are projecting themselves. They are deeply connected with who they are. And the transmission of that causes the chemistry of the subtle realm in the rest of us. And again, this is right-hand quadrant. This is real material stuff. This isn't just consciousness. This isn't just imaginary. Uh, but it causes the chemistry of the, um, you know, collective to shift. And, you know, we can see this with great athletes or great artists or these riveting performances. I have some posted on the website. You know, it's just, it's thrilling when it happens, and it moves us beyond our small selves. I mean, we use language like, I was beside myself. I was blown away. I was shattered by this person or this performance. And I'm talking sort of, you know, big-time X factor. 
But politicians have it too. And it is related to, again, the degree in which they are actually transmitting something authentic. And this isn't transferable by a family name. And Clinton, being a Clinton, doesn't mean that you have it. And, and this is also Jeb Bush's problem. Jeb Bush apparently doesn't have it either. His brother did. You know, you could say what you will about George W. Bush, Bush but he had a, a, a sparkly vividness of swagger in Texas something that cut through that Jeb doesn't have. And so, and, and so did Bill Clinton. So does Bill Clinton. Uh, and we're seeing that this, it's, it's like trans, trying to transfer this to the wife or the brother is kind of like pushing a rope. You know, it just doesn't really work. And so, you know, from an integral perspective, it just calls on us to differentiate. One of the engines of ev evolution is to see something and see that, oh, okay, as I look more clearly, I see that it's not something, it's more than one thing, and I can differentiate this part from that part. And then having differentiated these clearly, <coughs> I can integrate them. And so we see that with Hillary and Bill Clinton, for instance, you know, they put forth, this is back when they were um, governor and first lady of Arkansas, that you would get this two for one you would, you would elect Bill, but you would get Bill and Hillary. And these were sort of an equal partnership and two superstars and a man and a woman married. And at the level of liberal culture, for sure, uh, we were excited about that and ready to absorb the idea that we could have a couple made up of high-achieving equals. But, you know, the reality really wasn't there. I mean, he was always more popular than she was. She was always more popular and is more popular when she's not a candidate than when she is. Uh, and she's not been a successful politician the times that she's actually been up to bat. If you look at the healthcare initiative that she pushed through, or, or, or at least tried to push through in 1993 in the early stages of Clinton's presidency, it was terribly bungled and uh, an almost immediate failure, a non-starter. It took Obama to get something like it through. Uh, what, 15 years later? She's also the inevitable first woman candidate. Uh, this is in 2008. This is 2008. This is seven years after 9-11. 9-11, 2001, the uh, Twin t Towers in New York are bombed by Osama bin Laden. So here we are, 2008, seven years later, and Hillary Clinton loses to a black man named Barack Hussein Obama. That isn't easy. I mean... Barack Obama is a political athlete. Uh, you would say that uh, Bill Clinton is a political athlete. And I think you see that Hillary Clinton doesn't have that, you know, sort of X factor.
that subtle energy thing. And again, nor does Bush. So neither of them feel like they're moving us into the future. And so Hillary's tanking. Uh, Bush is at 7 8%. It's just pathetic where he's at. And yet, you know, we'll see. I mean, Hillary could win. I'm, uh, but all of this said, you know, 76% of Democrats still view her favorably. And uh, she's still currently, we'll see, you know, how if the next two months or like the last two months, the, all bets are off. But she's still on an easy path to win the nomination. If she does, then she's, uh, you know, a good contender to win the presidency because at that point, we're not comparing her with any ideal. We're comparing her with the Republican uh, competitor. And that's, you know, a whole new ballgame. But I do want to say, too, this is where I get into a little bit of the, um, you know, inquirer kind of like the, the, the scandal side of things. Uh, and this is all my conjecture, but, you know, Bill, Bill and Hillary Clinton are public figures. They, you know, put themselves in the public eye. And so the rest of us are going to gossip about them. And I, I'm pro-gossip. And my secret pet theory is that Bill Clinton doesn't really want this to happen. I mean, what does he have to gain? First of all, if she wins... He's no longer the star, but he's part of this two-for-one thing, which I don't think he ever believed in the first place. And, you know, history has borne him out so far. But if she becomes a president, she then, you know, all of a sudden, he's not as special as he thought. And, you know, we talked about Donald Trump being a, a, a psychopathic three, Enneagram three. Bill Clinton's in that territory, too, you know. He's, as I said, it, it can actually be a, a, a sort of a qualifier for, for leadership. Uh, it also puts him back in the muck of politics. I mean, currently, Bill Clinton has this rarefied, exalted stature of being the ex-president, successful ex-president, two-term ex-president of the United States of America, uh, you know. It can't get much better than that. And now he gets has to go back into the day-to-day -day fights and brings back all of his baggage. It's going to cramp his style. I don't know. I think this idea of the Clintons as being a monolith is specious and that we can tease that apart and see that what one has is not transferable to the other. All right. Okay, a couple other points I want to make about the American uh, presidential race is Ben Carson, who is number two in the Republic, right after Donald Trump, uh, following him by a few points, maybe up to 10 points, depending on the, um, on the poll. And Ben Carson is African-American. He is a neurosurgeon. And he is running the country, or uh, running for president. <laughs> it's Freudian slip there. Uh, but I think Bill Maher uh, summed him up in an interesting way, in an interesting postmodern way that I'll challenge. But um, I want you to play, Brett, if you would, 
what Bill Maher had to say about uh, Ben Carson on his um, on a show. Well, he, he's the soft-spoken Donald Trump. I mean, let's not forget Ben Carson is super crazy. We did an, we did an editor a couple of years ago about the phenomenon, what I call smart, stupid people. Yeah. Like, I mean, somehow he's a brilliant neurosurgeon who believes the world is 5,000 years old. I mean, I'll, as long as I live, I will never understand that, that divide in people's minds, how you can be brilliant and a total fucking idiot at the same time. He, he had a press. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, and, um, and it's one that Integral has an answer for. And that is that, you know, if you look at the altitudes of development, yes, the, you know, we move inexorably from warrior to traditional to modern to postmodern to integral, you know, and if we live long enough or have enough lifetimes, we're going to go one to the next. But we don't do it in lockstep. We actually move up these stages of development in what we would call lines or intelligences, lines of development or intelligences. So people can be cognitively at a postmodern stage of development and be morally at a warrior stage of development or be emotionally at a postmodern sensitized level of development and to have values that come from a traditional or pre-modern stage of development. And there, these lines of development are remarkably, astonishingly independent so that you can have somebody like Ben Carson, who is a um, scientist. He's a, a noted neurosurgeon, and he does indeed believe that the world is 5,000 years old because his cognitive development is at a higher a stage of development than his spiritual stage of development. And this is not unusual. Look around at the people you know, at your friends. And it often happens, you know, that just it's basically the karma of our lives. There was a, 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 a profile on Ben Carson in the latest New Yorker where they talked about an incident that was very, very consequential uh, by Carson's own appraisal in his life. And it happened when he was in ninth grade. After a friend teased him, he pulled out a knife and thrusted it at the friend's stomach. The boy could have died. Carson could have gone to jail. Instead, the blade hit his friend's belt buckle and broke. Carson ran home, locked himself in the bathroom with the book of Proverbs. This is from the Old Testament, a book of the Bible, book of Proverbs. And he prayed to God to take away his temper. He says that he walked out of the bathroom a different person. And this is a tale that is oft told, how one incident can really push us from one stage to the next in an instant. So, Ben Carson, you know, moved from warrior, from a violent to a civilized stage of development. And that felt so right, felt so stable and so good 
to him that he took probably permanent residency there in the spiritual slash moral line of development. And yet his scientific, his cognition could go further. Uh, but for him, science being a thing that you do, not the thing that you are. You are a human being. He is a human being living in the kingdom of the almighty God of the universe. Isn't that something? You know, can you feel some sort of resonance with that? And that is, you know, Ben Carson. So, you know, it's not just that. I mean, one of the reasons that he appeals to, and this is going to sound very cynical for a few minutes and allow me that. He's a black guy who hates Obama. The Republicans love that. He called Obamacare slavery. He called Obama racist. He says that we're living in a Gestapo nation. Um, you know, it's like Bill Barr said. He's, you know, what did he say? He's uh, super crazy <laughs> in those ways. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's sort of like the, the Colin Powell and even the Herman Cain phenomena. In the last couple elections, early in the primary season, uh, Republicans go for the black candidate. And, you know, th this is especially the black candidate who rejects the idea that there's really a, an active racism in the country. I mean, Ben Carson is the opposite of the angry black man. Uh, he not only is not angry, he has this, you know, sort of flat affect that is, it's astonishing to me that he's gotten much traction at all because of, you know, his, his unwillingness to really show any kind of passion. It's all very, very, very controlled. And, you know, he even apologized to Donald Trump for questioning his love of the Bible. <laughs> so, you know, you could say that there's a certain cynicism to the Republican voter who, you know, will say, I want to be for Ben Carson. Uh, you know, again, he has no policies. He's, you know, he's very much just a visceral candidate. Uh, but I think that that actually shows evolutionary progress that people and so good to him that he took probably permanent residency there in the spiritual slash moral line of development. And yet his scientific, his cognition could go further. Uh, but for him, science being a thing that you do, not the thing that you are. You are a human being. He is a human being living in the kingdom of the almighty God of the universe. Isn't that something? You know, can you feel some sort of resonance with that? And that is, you know, Ben Carson. So, you know, it's not just that. I mean, one of the reasons that he appeals to, and this, will, this is going to sound very cynical for a few minutes and allow me that. He's a black guy who hates Obama. The Republicans love that. 
He called Obamacare slavery. He called Obama racist. He says that we're living in a Gestapo nation. Um, you know, it's like Bill Barr said. He's, you know, what did he say? He's uh, super crazy <laughs> in those ways. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's sort of like the, the Colin Powell and even the Herman Cain phenomena. In the last couple elections, early in the primary season, uh, Republicans go for the black candidate. And, you know, th this is especially the black candidate who rejects the idea that there's really a, an active racism in the country. I mean, Ben Carson is the opposite of the angry black man. Uh, he not only is not angry, he has this, you know, sort of flat affect that is, it's astonishing to me that he's gotten much traction at all because of, you know, his, his unwillingness to really show any kind of passion. It's all very, very, very controlled. And, you know, he even apologized to Donald Trump for questioning his love of the Bible. <laughs> so, you know, you could say that there's a certain cynicism to the Republican voter who, you know, will say, I want to be for Ben Carson. Uh, you know, again, he has no policies. He's, you know, he's very much just a visceral candidate. Uh, but I think that that actually shows evolutionary progress that like progress. You know, sorry, modernists and postmodernists, but gay rights, I mean, do you know what gay people actually do? I mean, have you really thought about it? Uh, you know, it's repulsive at this stage of development as you organize yourself to be good and true. And that's where she's at. Now, you know, what I would notice as a homosexual myself, as a card-carrying homosexual, is that, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, she's been saved or, or the culture has been saved from sodomy. It's just that the culture has moved to sodomy in a way because the heterosexuals now do what gay people did and do. And this is a movement of humanity, a movement of culture, oral sex, anal sex, everybody's doing it. And that as much as anything, even though, you know, I'm not sure gay people want to really carry the flag for sodomy, <laughs> but it's really true. It's not that everybody else accepted us, it's that everybody else joined us. But people who are coming from that, you know, pre-traditional or, you know, unorganized, uh, no impulse control, hedonistic stage, stage of development, it certainly doesn't feel like progress to embrace a sexual revolution. So, you know, that's just some integral understanding of that stage of development. All right. Well, there's, you know, certainly more to talk about. And the presidential election is going to continue for the next year plus. And then not to mention all of the stuff that's going on everywhere in the world. And we will have lots to talk about over the next few weeks. So this isn't the end, just the beginning. But to put a um, 
period at the end of the sentence of this particular episode, uh, I want to do something that we have uh, done in the last uh, few times that I think is really nice. And that is to end with essentially a work of art, a poem, right, Brett? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, this was sent to us by our mutual friend, Max. And it is very beautiful. And maybe you'll introduce it. And I won't come back at the end. I just want to leave you with the vibe of this wonderful poem. Uh, and just welcome you back to Daily Evolver Live next Tuesday night. And we'll keep, we'll keep things going. But Brett, why don't you introduce us to our poem here? This is a post by the Vlog Brothers. They are a really popular YouTube channel. They have like, I think, six and a half million subscribers or something. Uh, this guy made a video called Yellowstone, The Terror of Change. And for those of you who may not be in the U.S., uh, Yellowstone National Park is one of the coolest and like most dangerous places on Earth. There's a lot of volcanic activity underneath it, and um, it's always changing, and it's a really amazing place. And uh, So yeah, let's see. This is just three and a half minutes. What's it called again? Yellowstone? Yellowstone, the terror of change. Oh, cool. All right. Yeah, he starts off talking about how he didn't like how Tumblr does reposts now. And, you know, then he started thinking about change and about his visit to Yellowstone. And he comes back to Tumblr at the end and thinks, you know, well, everything's changing. And it puts everything into context, I think. Um, well, very good. Let's hear it. All right. Good morning, John. A couple of weeks ago, Tumblr changed how it displays reblogs, and I did not like this because it was change, and I was frustrated. And then last week, I went to Yellowstone National Park, potentially the coolest place on Earth. It was the first national park ever created, and it's one of the most dangerous things on the planet. Not like to individuals traveling in the park, though that can be dangerous too. I mean to the whole world, really. Uh, part of the reason Yellowstone is so interesting is that it is a very, very big volcano. Three times in the last two million years, the Yellowstone Yellowstone supervolcano has erupted, spewing out tens or even hundreds of cubic miles of debris, affecting global weather patterns and laying ash down as far away as Texas. Now, this isn't going to happen again anytime soon, but it will happen again someday, and when it happens, the park will basically be gone. But the remarkable thing is that it happened 600,000 years ago, and as you travel the park, you drive over the rim of the caldera formed in that eruption. And other than that, the desolation that eruption caused is pretty much invisible. Life just rushed back in to fill the void created by that massive event. The ground is a thing that doesn't move. If you're grounded, you're like a rock. People change, the things we make change, but the land remains the same, and yet it doesn't. In Yellowstone, more than anywhere, places do not stay the same. Geysers turn on and off, new springs eat through the ground. As the water cools, crystals are deposited, building into giant mounds, and the ground itself rises and falls in ripples and domes across the land as hot gas and magma surges beneath the surface. Everything constant is a lie, and my life continues to remind me of that. We want stability, but we can't have it, and that's both sad and wonderful. Now, we apply false stability to Yellowstone. Its most famous landmark, of course, is Old Faithful, 
a geyser that blasts every 70 minutes or so with remarkable regularity, but Old Faithful will one day cheat on us, and everyone knows that. Someday all of the benches and lodges we built around it will just be a semicircle around a bunch of dry rocks. Here's New Blue Spring, now dormant and white, and this is Constant Geyser, so named because it never stopped spurting until it did. But Yellowstone has broken no contract with us. It makes no pretense of stability. It's honest in a way the rest of the earth and even life isn't. An honesty that reminds me that the inevitability of change, though it terrifies me, also excites me. That incurable illness that makes me always want to know what's next to see the future, the future where things are not like they are today. The future that will allow me to look back and miss what once was, that will scrub my present day of the dinginess and the crud until I only remember the brilliant sparkles and the deepest gashes. We're all standing on that cliff, beyond which there is nothing until there is. And we always believe that it will be there, especially those of us who have been so rarely burned, until someday it isn't there, and your life has changed, your world has changed, and there's nothing you can do to get it back again. Yellowstone doesn't lie to me. Yellowstone reminds me that even something as constant as the ground beneath my feet could just one day fly into the air and land in Texas. And so maybe the way my reblogs look on Tumblr isn't the thing I should be worrying about. 